Section 14 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 4, Part 4. It was at this period that James received his first solemn warning of the project of his son-in-law, the Prince of Orange, to deprive him of his crown, and of his treacherous practices with many of his servants. Louis the Fourteenth, having sent an especial envoy, Bon Repos, to give him intelligence of what was going on, Bon Repos found James with his queen at Bath, and endeavored to prevail on him to enter into a secret treaty with Louis for his own defense, but nothing could persuade him to believe that William was capable of the conduct alleged, and he declared his intention of keeping the treaty of Nimeguen inviolate. After passing a few days with Mary Beatrice, James left her at Bath, and proceeded to London for the dispatch of business. From thence he went to Windsor, where the Queen joined him on the 6th of October, and they returned to Whitehall together on the 11th. The King's birthday was kept with great splendor. As James led his consort into the supper room, he made her give her hand to be kissed by his favorite prelate, Cartwright, Bishop of Chester. Their majesties were both invited by the city of London to dine at the Lord Mayor's feast at Guildhall. The invitation was also extended to the papal nuncio, who not only went, but was well received. The dinner is said to have been an indifferent one. By the end of November, it began to be whispered about the court that there was a prospect of the queen becoming a mother once more. Excessive excitement was caused by the rumor, the truth of which was angrily impugned on the one hand, and hailed with extravagant joy on the other. The circumstance was too important to the interest of the king, to be permitted to remain long in doubt. He mentions the situation of his consort, in a friendly letter to his daughter Mary, dated November 29th, and notices that the queen had informed her of it previously. The Queen's pregnancy was announced by royal proclamation, and in the Gazette of the 23rd of December, with an order for a day of general thanksgiving, James appears to have been determined to obtain the benefit of the prayers of the Church of England for the fruition of his hopes, at as early a period as was consistent with propriety. He commanded the bishops to prepare a suitable form of prayer and thanksgiving for the occasion, to be read in all the churches in and for ten miles round the metropolis, on Sunday, January 15th, and in every church throughout England on the 29th of that month. Nothing was said, implying hopes of male issue, as was afterwards pretended, but simply, that the queen might become a joyful mother of children, that God would command his holy angels to watch over her, and defend her from all dangers and evil accidents, that the king might behold his children's children, and peace upon Israel, and that his gracious consort, Queen Mary, might be as a fruitful vine upon the walls of his house, and his children, like the olive branches, round about his table. A farther petition was added, that the whole of the royal family might be increased and multiplied. A prayer that was intended for the benefit of the three childless heirs presumptive of the realm, Mary, Anne, and William. Mary had never borne a child, and Anne had been as unfortunate as her royal stepmother, in the loss of all her infants. The next persons in the succession were the two daughters of the king's youngest sister, Henrietta, Duchess of Orléans, both Catholics, and it was by no means a desirable contingency that the crown should devolve on either of those foreign princesses, 
the eldest of whom was married to the king of spain the youngest to the duke of savoy under these circumstances the prospect of the queen bringing a male heir to the crown might have been regarded as a most auspicious event had there been any prospect of his being educated in the national faith to the daughters of james the second and their consorts such a contingency was a matter of painful consideration they had regarded the crown as their natural inheritance and they determined not to relinquish the influence they already held in the realm as the heirs presumptive and reversionary the exultation of the king the confident predictions of the catholic party that the royal infant would be a prince were retorted by a series of the coarsest and most revolting lampoons tending to throw injurious doubts on the alleged situation of the queen it might be imagined that the want of judgment on the part of their majesties in attributing the present prospect of an heir to the miraculous intercessions of their favorite saints had provoked the incredulous to a suspicion that some imposition was meditated if the stories that were now circulated by their enemies had not been a mere revival of the malicious libels that were invented some years before for the purpose of stigmatizing the birth of the last child of mary beatrice in the event of its proving a son though a son was eagerly anticipated and desired certain attempts were made by the catholic party to provide for the contingency of a girl by insinuating that the daughter of a king and queen that is to say a princess born after james's accession to the throne would have a better claim to the succession than his daughters by anne hyde the situation of the queen encouraged james to pursue his plans with redoubled energy for the abrogation of the penal laws of the cruelty and injustice of those statutes no one who reads the civil and ecclesiastical annals of the three kingdoms can pretend to doubt james who to use his own words had learned the great lesson of religious toleration in the school of persecution was ambitious of being the first british monarch who would proclaim to his people the precious boon of liberty of conscience a boon more glorious than all the boasted privileges which were wrung from the tyrant john by the steel-clad champions of freedom at runnymede in the preceding spring james had declared in council that four of his predecessors having attempted in vain to establish a general conformity of worship and the penal laws against dissenters having only led to rebellions and bloodshed he was convinced that nothing could conduce more to the peace and quiet of the kingdom and the increase of trade than an entire liberty of conscience it having he said always been his opinion as most suitable to the principles of christianity that no man should be persecuted for conscience sake which he thought was not to be forced and that it could never be to the interests of a king of england to do it he then directed his attorney and solicitor general not to suffer any process in his name to be issued against any dissenter whatsoever in this proffered charter of religious freedom the last of the stuart kings anticipated the enlightened policy which has gradually but very cautiously actuated british sovereigns and statesmen of the nineteenth century unfortunately for james the second the course of christian civilization was not sufficiently advanced in that day to admit of a legislative act of christian charity the king forgot that he was a mere weather on the stream working against the strong tide of popular opinion and in a fatal hour attempted to carry a noble object by unconstitutional means 
the declaration of liberty of conscience was not so gratefully accepted in scotland as the sufferings of the presbyterian party had led the king to imagine it would they were offended with being included in the same act which proclaimed freedom of worship to papists to anabaptists and to quakers the confidential intimacy that subsisted between the king and william penn the philanthropic quaker was regarded with scarcely less hostility than the influence of father petre and the jesuits it was after all james's greatest glory that his name should have been associated with that of the benignant founder of the utopia of the new world pennsylvania that the royal admiral with his passion for naval glory the despotic monarch with his stately ideas of the divinity that hedges in a king and all the hot zeal of a convert to romanism about him could enter with sympathy and delight into the enlightened views of that pure-minded christian philosopher william penn is an interesting fact and not less strange than true james once condescended to use a playful reproof to the peculiarity of the quaker who for the first time he entered his presence after he became king did so with his hat on james immediately took off his own friend james said penn why dost thee uncover thy head because replied his majesty with a smile it is the fashion here for only one man to wear his hat penn was sent by james on a private mission to the hague for the purpose of persuading the prince of orange to consent to the abolition of the penal laws the eloquence of the man of peace and christian philanthropy who anticipated the fulfillment of the prophecy relating to the millenniary reign of christ in the establishment of perfect fellowship and brotherly love among all who confessed his name on earth sounded less pleasantly to the military stadtholder than the inflammatory language of burnett and other priestly agitators who taught him how to make a political creed the master key to the kingdoms of this world william refused to concur in the removal of any statute that was not formally repealed in parliament james further committed himself by an indirect application through stuart a scotch refugee at the hague to william's minister fagel for the purpose of winning his daughter mary to second his wishes he not only got a dry refusal from the princess but the mortification of seeing the correspondence published mary beatrice who rarely took any part in politics had vainly represented to her consort the folly of his proceedings which arose from a miscalculation of his paternal influence the queen says father petre as well as myself was of opinion against the sending of any such letter to the hague upon this subject but rather some person able to discourse and to persuade should have been sent thither for all such letters when they are not grateful produce bad effects that which is spoken face to face is not so easily divulged nor anything discovered to the vulgar but what we have a mind the people should know after some allusions to the queen's situation and the ribald lampoons that were in circulation one of which had been found affixed to a pillar of the church the jesuit statesman adds you will agree with me most reverend father that we have done a great thing by introducing mrs collier to the queen this woman is wholly devoted to our society and zealous for the catholic religion this mrs collier from whom such great things were expected is rather a mysterious personage her name has never been mentioned in connection with any of the complicated intrigues of the period neither does it occur in the list of the queen's attendants or the nursery establishment of the prince 
probably her majesty had sufficient penetration to discover that mrs collier was a dangerous intrigant and got rid of her mary beatrice was now so happy in the undivided possession of the king's affections that she was willing to forgive those who had endeavoured to injure her by encouraging him in his guilty attentions to her rival and raising a party in favour of that bad woman convinced that she had no longer cause to dread either her or her friends her majesty took the first opportunity of showing the earl of clarendon that she was not only willing to overlook all past causes of displeasure but ready to render him any service in her power in the afternoon march eighth he says i waited on the queen upon an intimation given that she wondered she had not seen me a great while for i had not been with her for some months her majesty was very gracious to me and asked me why i did not come more to court i told her i did some time wait on the king at his levee but having nothing to do at court i thought it not needful to be as often there as i had been formerly she said i was to blame that she knew that the king would be kind to me and that she would put him in mind of me and said that she expected to see me often she then asked me if my pensions were well paid i told her yes the king came into the room from hunting and so i came away clarendon was at that time involved in a sea of trouble in consequence of the queen dowager's suit against him for arrears in his accounts the amiable behaviour of the reigning queen was therefore of some comfort to him the secret correspondence of james's treacherous favourites his discarded ministers and disaffected nobles with the court of orange unveils to the dispassionate documentary historian an extensive confederacy with the princess anne at the head of it for the purpose of branding the child whose birth was so eagerly anticipated by the king and queen as spurious in case it should prove a boy it was from this confederacy that all the disgusting lampoons and incendiary pamphlets on that subject emanated as early as the spring sixteen eighty six the princess anne had betrayed to the acute observation of the french envoy bon repos that ambition and hatred to the queen were the master passions of her soul in what manner had mary beatrice provoked her ill-will the reader naturally inquires but anne has never brought a specific charge against her royal stepmother with whom she had lived in perfect amity from her tenth year up to the period of king james's accession to the throne the following passage from one of anne's private confidential letters to her sister mary is rather indicative of the evil passions of the writer than the bad qualities of the object of her vituperation the queen you must know is of a very proud and haughty temper and though she pretends to hate all form and ceremony yet one sees that those who make their court that way are very well thought of she declares always that she loves sincerity and hates flattery but when the grossest flattery in the world is said to her face she seems extremely well pleased with it it really is enough to turn one's stomach to hear what things are said to her of that kind and to see how mightily she is satisfied with it some women there are whose minds are unfortunately so constituted that they cannot endure to see attention offered to another the adulation and homage that were paid to her beautiful stepmother who was about five years older than herself appears to have been the exciting cause of anne's ill-will against her so true is the observation of the wisest men anger is fierce and jealousy is cruel but who can stand against envy 
that no want of courtesy or even of affection had been manifested by the consort of james the second towards his daughter may be perceived by anne's concluding remark she the queen pretends to have a deal of kindness for me but i doubt it is not real for i never see any proofs of it but rather the contrary surely if the queen had ever committed herself by word or deed so as to furnish any tenable charge of complaint and would have instanced it in support of her last assertion the hatred of the princess anne towards mary beatrice was of too deadly a nature to evaporate in useless invectives she took infinite pains to persuade her sister the princess of orange that a plot was in progress to deprive them of their rights in the succession by the imposition of a spurious prince of wales on the nation she complained in the coarsest language to her sister and the earl of clarendon that the queen would not permit her to touch her and that her majesty always went into another room to change her dress anne all this while kept up a show of duty to her father and kindness to the queen she was frequently at her majesty's toilet and performed the service as usual which the etiquette of those times prescribed of assisting to put on her majesty's chemise the queen was taken alarmingly ill at the end of seven months while the king was gone at chatham and her apprehensions of death were so great that she wrote to the king to come immediately to her and also send for her confessor everybody flocking about her the princess failed not to be there too and appeared so easy and kind that nothing could equal it talked of the queen's condition with mighty concern and was wanting in no manner of respect and care the indisposition of his consort who had now become an object of the tenderest regard and most watchful solicitude to the king is thus mentioned by that monarch in the following friendly letter to his son-in-law of orange whitehall may eleventh sixteen eighty eight my going to chatham on tuesday last hindered me from writing to you by that day's post to let you know i had received yours of the eleventh i found my ships and stores in very good condition and chose one of my new three or third frigates to be fitted out to carry the queen dowager when she goes to portugal i came back hither yesterday morning and found that my queen had not been well and was in some fears of coming before her time but god be thanked she was very well all day yesterday and continues so now so that i hope she will go out her full time the weather is now very seasonable and there is like a great store of fruit this year i have no more to say but that you shall find me as kind to you as you can expect james r for my son the prince of orange a week later the queen herself wrote this little billet to william in the same easy familiar style which marks her occasional correspondence with him may nineteenth sixteen eighty eight i am so ashamed to have been so long without answering your obliging letter that i know not what to say for myself i well believe you know me too well to suspect it want of kindness therefore i hope you will think it as it was want of time or at the worst a little laziness which being confessed will i hope be excused for else i did long to return you a thousand thanks as i do now for your kind wishes which i hope you will continue and believe that i am with all sincerity truly yours m r during the whole of the month of may the queen's health was in a precarious state she was bled in consequence of feverish symptoms as late as the twenty-ninth 
some anxiety must have been on her spirit in consequence of the cruel reports that were poisoning the public mind against her at that period when she was looking forward with trembling hope and natural dread to the hour of woman's peril mary beatrice had been accused of unbecoming haughtiness in treating the injurious rumors that were in circulation with silent contempt as a delicate woman she could do no otherwise as a queen she appears to have acted with great prudence and to have done everything necessary to convince the great ladies of the court and the princess anne of the reality of her alleged situation it was her original intention to lie in at windsor but she made a very proper concession to public opinion when she gave up that arrangement and determined to await her accouchment in the metropolis where the witnesses requisite for the verification of the birth of the royal infant could be got together at a hasty summons which could scarcely be the case at windsor or even hampton court her enemies have with a strange obliquity of reasoning construed this convincing proof of her willingness to afford full satisfaction to every one interested into her presumption of her guilt the great bustle says the princess anne that was made about her lying in at windsor and then resolving all of a sudden to go to st james's which is much the properest place to act such a cheat in can any one believe that if anne did suspect a cheat that she would have shown so little regard to her own interest as to have invented a pretext for going to bath instead of remaining on the spot to expose it but the queen had given her indubitable proofs that she was about to become a mother and anne purposely went out of the way that she might not be a witness of the birth of her brother whose rights she intended to dispute and in case the expected infant proved to be a girl she would escape a disagreeable duty by her absence she came to take the leave of the queen before she went to bath and they conversed together in a confidential manner the queen always expressed herself as doubtful whether her confinement would take place in june or july the princess anne said to her madam i think you will be brought to bed before i return giving at the same time a reason for her opinion of which she was afterwards pointedly reminded by mrs margaret dawson when she expressed a doubt whether the young prince were actually her brother on the second of june the queen said she would go to st james's and await the good hour it was there that all her other children had been born and it was also the birthplace of the king her husband the consorts of the stuart kings had been accustomed to lie in at that palace and there was no precedent of any queen having been confined at whitehall which was obviously unfit for such a purpose being very noisy and open from morning till night to crowds of well-dressed people who chose to make it a lounge it was besides a great public office where all the business of the nation was transacted and the queen's apartments fronted the river mary beatrice never liked whitehall she said of it whitehall was one of the largest and most uncomfortable houses in the world her heart always clung to her first english home which had been endeared to her by those tender recollections which royal pomp had never been able to efface king james in a letter to his daughter mary thus announces the intended removal of himself and his queen to st james's palace whitehall june eighth sixteen eighty eight the q and i intend to lie at st james's to-morrow night she intending to lie in there End of section 14.